Welcome to another episode of Advancing Racial Equity 4.0, brought to you by HRE Wired, hosted by me, Shireen, the HR Conversationalist. This is a part two episode. If you remember, last week I was joined by Anastasia and Amanda, and because we got into it so much, I had to separate the two episodes. So this one, we go into interracial friendships, specifically between black women and white women. Talking about the dynamics at play, bearing in mind the historical context, all rooted in power. Anastasia, you talked about very early on when you started this conversation about understanding that solidarity has to be underpinned by friendship. One of the challenges I think with the feminist movements I'm going to I'm not going to put I'm just going to say the feminist movement per se is that the support for anyone who isn't white has always been quite conditional conditional for a lot of things some of the things that we we've already spoken about but the question remains when we start to unpick some of those feelings of insecurity of 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 wanting recognition for showing up and all and centering and and you know not everyone getting the need to decenter how far is it possible for black and white women to have a genuine friendship under the backdrop of all of this stuff that we don't always talk about that's a million dollar question <laughs> yeah i think i mean It's work. I think people, you know, I think generally in our culture, we are, excuse me, we are bombarded with narratives of friendship, that friendship just happens, right? We, you know, especially, you know, we can look at media and film where romantic relations portrayed, they're always portrayed as requiring work as, you know, um, a romantic couple might, you know, meet and then have some conflict and have to overcome them. And we are bombarded with these narratives that romantic love takes work. Romantic love has obstacles that we must overcome. But when, you know, it comes to cultural representation of friendship, most most often, you know, we don't really have a lot of good representation of interracial friendship. Um, it is often, you know, it just happens. We just become friends and we have these friends for life, right? And I think in our culture, we don't really think about building friendships, building solidarity as also being a kind of relational work, um, which I think is one of the impediments to doing this work well and to actually building genuine genuine and reciprocal and really emphasis on reciprocal relationships because again to return to culture and media when we do see interracial friendships um on the tv screen um it is often where the black woman character is adjacent to a white woman's you know hero journey in this particular narrative right we are constantly fed um these images in a way that we don't even find anything wrong with them is just you know is just there and we just um assume that that's how it is and i think you know there is kind of a second um aspect to it we're both fed those images but those images are also um based in our own realities right there's you know a lot of times as you said before white women will admire black women for their resilience for their strength and go to black women for support but then do we actually grapple with that question of reciprocity in relationships when you know white women 
have to ask themselves, what am I bringing to the table? What am I giving back? You know, anecdotally on a personal level, I have had a lot of black women who have mentored me, who have nurtured me, who have, you know, been um, in relationship with me that have supported me and really helped me. Um, and there's constant question that I think um, comes with historical awareness of the dynamics historical dynamics between black and white women that has um, to prompt us to ask, um, is this relationship reciprocal? And what am I giving back to this relationship? Sure, sometimes I might need help and you know my black woman friend might be there for me, but am I really there for her? Am I really showing up? What am I doing, right? Or am I just staking? Because then we're just falling into these historical um, tropes uh, that we are not just seeing on the TV screen, but we are enacting over and over again in our lives in ways that often are violent, hurtful, hurtful and harmful. And so, you know, I think that's where we really must begin. Um, and I guess just the second uh, part of my answer that I will briefly add is in terms of thinking about this kind of solidarity and friendship building between black and white women, um, and the historic erasure and exclusion of Black women's voices, to me, has to do with white women still seeing Black women's liberation as separate, right? That is something that we must include. That is something that we must make space of, you know, the kind of like somewhat patronizing attitude of like, okay, sure, we'll include you, like we'll center you, this guilt-ridden impulse um, to be a good person versus actually embodying the feeling of, no, like my liberation is tied to other women's liberation, to black women's liberation, to liberation of women of color, and actually um, feeling and, 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 and embodying that um, belief that I cannot be free until you are free. And so then I don't have to, you know, think about all the gymnastics I have to do as an ally um, to be good and to include you. Like I hopefully will fiercely believe that my own freedom is dependent on yours. And also just to add, you know, I thought of this quote from Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, when she's talking about the definitions belong to the definers. And so in this power scheme of white women have more power than black women, they get to define what friendship means. And it's like to be able to have an actual radical solidarity-based friendship, you'd have to give over the power of definition to the black woman to allow her to set the boundaries, the standards, the terms, even something like, you know, asking what your love language is to a friend of, do you like words of affirmation? Do you want service? Like, how can I best make you feel comfortable knowing the history that is always hanging over our heads? Like, show me as a white woman how you are constantly working to earn my trust and to be worthy of my respect. I love that. And I just keep going back to like, Amanda, I'm going to be quoting you all day long. Like when, <laughs> cause you know, like when I get hold of a phrase, like I'm just going to be like, yeah, that was Amanda's <laughs> phrase. Yes. Copyright. But one of the things I think that we as black women have to remember is we are not vessels mm-hmm. and that takes work. Because sometimes, Mm -hmm. right, so when we're talking about, you know, like this Mm -hmm. cycle that you were talking about, Anastasia, and when, so you see this narrative of black women being the sidekick, the funny ones, the one that mops the tears, that, you know, we're we're like, we're always the enablers, as you said, whenever the the heroines or the heroes of a story. And so we're used to this kind of sidekick, the white woman and her black friend, right? And the black friend is really funny, or larger than life, or, you know, whatever, whatever those kind of stereotypes are. And because of that historical context, but also because of our lack of safety, 
because of our oppression, because of internalized racism and all of the things that we know that we are now trying to overtly combat because, you know, to some extent, we're waking up to this new world. We also have to recognize what we tolerated before we cannot no longer tolerate, but that takes practice Mm -hmm. because we haven't learned how to assert our own boundaries because we're still fundamentally worried about upsetting white women because we're made out to be the ones that are like, how dare you? Like, we're the ogres, we're the, you know, we're unfair. And it almost steeps back into this idea of, like, we're the aggressive ones, we're the intimidating ones. And it's almost like, who are you to make her cry? Yeah, yeah. And I love that you use the word enabler because, you know, Mm. just to share my own journey, I've been in therapy for the last couple of years and I've realized, wow, the black woman, white woman interracial friendship relationship is one of codependency of one where the white woman is the abuser and the black woman is the enabler. And as we know, in a codependent relationship, there can be no boundaries between enabler and abuser because the abuser must have whatever they need at all times, almost like a drug, like the enabler becomes a drug. So it's like, if you can just get a shot of me in your arm whenever you want, how could I possibly develop a narrative of who I am outside of what you need from me? And so, you know, for black women, because we live in a racist society that doesn't value us, we've often been taught to accept crumbs and be in codependent relationships, romantically, sexually, platonically, work-based, etc. And it's like, how do we develop the courage then to set that boundary, even knowing that we will be, you know, lashed at against by the abuser? But, be able, but, but like, how do we manage to keep the presence of mind to say, actually, this is a codependent relationship. This is not healthy. This is not what I want. I deserve more than this. And to be firm in that, that's the work. And it takes, I think it takes courage and it takes daily work. Because mm-hmm. here's the thing, because you don't wake up like this. Like, you know, Anastasia, you, you talked about your journey in terms of, you know, understanding the dynamics of race and then discovering, you know, black feminism. Even after you might have read one novel or two novels, it's not like you're like, ta-da, I'm here and now I know all of this stuff. And it's the same thing with this, because you... We are unraveling years of conditioning. We are unraveling years of being the comforters, right? Never to be comforted. And we're also unraveling the fact that we have allowed ourselves, and I'm not, this is not victim blaming, but you know what I mean when I say this is that we have never pressed against that. We've always, we're always the one to retreat. We're always the one to turn the other cheek. Talking about work on both sides, but the work is very different. And we are not obliged to accept what somebody is able to give. Because even if somebody says, like, this is the best that I can give, part of stepping into our truth in the way that we want to live is, is, as you said, it's saying, well, actually, like, I appreciate you, but that is not enough for me or that does not work for me. And not feeling obliged to meet that person halfway to make them feel better therefore compromising on our comfort. Because we spent all this time historically, you know, the historical context is we've compromised our comfort every time. And I think that's what's difficult to understand because, you know, there's going to be some people who's going, I put in all this work to show her that I care, to show her this and to show her that. And look how she repays me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like my work as a black woman is learning how to be vulnerable because, you know, to riff on Audre Lorde, vulnerability is not a luxury. 
And the white woman's work is learning how to hold my vulnerability. I mean, even just to be a personal story anecdote, last summer after all of the you know police murders and all of the uproar, I had to cut off a whole lot of my white friends because they were not able to give me the emotional support that I needed when I was basically breaking down because of the stress of all of this racial trauma that had been building up for decades. They had no concept of this person that I had become when I was no longer just a vessel. And I could have stayed in those relationships and been like, oh, well, I'll just put myself to the side, whatever. But I had to choose, you know, this is literally killing me. I have to show myself that I value myself by putting myself away from you. And they were mad about it, but I'm still here, though, and I'm doing well. So that's what really matters. I chose myself. We as Black women have to choose ourselves because the reality is we can't wait for anybody else to choose us because they're still on a journey. Yep. So there's there's something about leadership almost in choosing ourselves because then you start to dictate the parameters of how people interact with you some people will get the program right so they'll get the memo they'll like yep understood I get it and other people won't but the I guess the onus is no longer on us to make it easier for them to give us what we need from that do you know what I mean from a place of prioritizing their comfort and making sure they don't feel too bad. And that's really difficult. That's really difficult. And I'm sure there's, there's going to be, like, I can't, I can, listen, I can't speak, but I'm sure there's going to be plenty, like, I know a lot of my listeners are going to be listening to this and thinking, oh, my God, is that me? Like, it might be. And if so, like, please lean into it because that was me for a long time too. I mean, I, my therapist was telling me the other week about the difference between, you know, pain and suffering. And it's like, for so long, I was suffering because I refused to believe in the power of myself to be able to change how my life looked. So I just thought, I'm gonna just go along with this for, you know, as long as I can stand it. And that cutting off process was hard, but not nearly as hard as living in suffering for years and years and years, and feeling like a victim. Like what advice would you give for white women who might be sitting here thinking, but oh my goodness, like what, do, what, what does that mean then? Should I not bother? Back to the, you know, <laughs> but it's true because they were right. We're going to get back. To, well, I'm just not going to bother then because if, if this is how I'm going to be treated or I'm going to do all this work and there's no payoff. Mm. Well, my first thought when I hear you say that is, uh, so it's all about you, right? So it's all about, you know, so I think, you know, I mean, if that is a response, which I think a lot of people might feel, I think, um, as Amanda said, you know, leaning into that, you, you know, getting curious about that, right? Um, what can that feeling, what can that interaction teach me about being a better friend, being a better person to this to this particular person or in my other friendships, right? Um, because, you know, the kind of um, cutting off process that Amanda talked about happens and we lose friends along the way, right? Um, there might be, you know, falling out with someone where the needs are misaligned or maybe I'm unable to offer something. But I think the, the really the point of transformation, hopefully, or the point that makes difference is, do I get defensive around that and say, you know, oh, okay, well, she doesn't want to be my friend. Well, I did my best, you know, okay, that's what you do, you know, and, and again, like defensive self-victimization, like, you know, I was a good friend, I did my best, you know, um, I mean, I don't know everything, but I tried my best, right? Like, it's a defensive um mechanism that doesn't allow us to see that each of us has our own truths and it may be true that i am quote unquote a good person and i did my best and i wasn't able to give um that friend um 
what she wanted, what she deserved, what she asked of me. Um, and how do we sit with that, lean into that and say, okay, that may be true. What she said, actually, how do we, how do we validate what black women feel, the feedback they give us, you know, without making it about ourselves. Um, and maybe that this relationship is over and maybe it's not, cannot be repaired. Or maybe the other person does not want to repair it and wants to move on for their own sake. But how do I take that into my next friendship? How do I, what do I learn from that in how I treat other black women in my life? Um, and I think that is, again, that breaking point. Do we become defensive? Do we become, do we make it about ourselves and about, you know, as I said, oh, well, I did my best, you know, uh, surely that best wasn't enough. So there's always better. Um, and I think that is the question that as white women, we should be asking ourselves, right? And if we think about conditioning, right, you know, Amanda, you talked about the kind of um, struggle with being socially conditioned for so long that black women face where, well, I'm pretty sure that white, white women um, go through that, you know, um, process in our own way. And I think, you know, the kind of answer here is that it is a lifelong process. And as you said, Shireen, you don't just read a book or two and become this, you know, pure enlightened ally, right? We have these experiences in our relationships precisely in order so we can continue deepening our commitments, but also our self-awareness, you know, and, and that's, you know, that seems important to me to be able to have that self reflection or capacity to hold these dynamics and see past the ego love that well i'm gonna i'm gonna come to you for final words amanda before i before i give my final final two pence worth (laughs) (laughs) i'd like them to know that a more compassionate empathetic loving and joyful and rhythmic future is possible if we have the courage to grasp it and to recognize that this world around us seems all right, because we have not been able to have the luxury of interrogating the beautiful vistas inside of ourselves that are actually quite endless and you know endlessly renewing, if we have the courage to d- dig into that well. I love that. I love that. So listen, let me just say, because not often, I normally just like cut the podcast section dead right so I'm like duh, duh, duh. and I always finish on like a, a an unconventional note so you know when people are like, oh yeah bye you know coming from but actually I do want to I'm going to make sure this is in while you're both here to hear this so you don't have to wait until I've, I've done the clip just to say that I am forever gratified when I have the opportunity to connect with individuals who I think are just doing the work but have a strong foundation about their why, but are also willing to step into this space that many people aren't willing to step into. We've talked about kind of black feminism and this idea of speaking truth to power. And for very, your stories are very different, but Anastasia, you absolutely embody that. And Amanda, you embody that. And so the two of you coming together on this, but this shared alignment almost about the value that black feminism can bring I just want to say thank you I think the more that we can think about voices that are silenced voices that are marginalized step away from it being a popularity contest step away from thinking that we need to get like gold stars like well done you and you and as you said just we're in a new we're in a new phase now where we black people we're no longer vessels we're no longer your vessel for whatever you know now's the time that we have to choose ourselves and to choose ourselves also means to think about how we can also 
help liberate others. Just that ability to see the oppression of others, even while oppressed, is a sign of growth. Doesn't take away from what we're trying to do. Just because you're being very specific, it doesn't, you're not disrespecting anyone as individuals. What we're doing is we're no longer prioritizing how it might be perceived because we're just saying what needs to be said. So that's like a very long ending because, you know, like this is this is in my mind. So I want you to kind of hear it from me direct just to say thank you so much for for continuing to do the work, for even taking the time to talk to me. Technical hiccups and all of that, because, you know, this is what it is. We're like we're doing it across the seas. We're making the connection happen across the water. So I just appreciate the both of you. Thank you, Shireen. And thank you for sharing your platform. And I think the conversation was, at least for me, it was very enjoyable and, and fruitful. And I learned a lot from listening for, to you. Yeah. And thank you for taking a chance on us. And thank you for being unapologetically yourself, which makes me feel comfortable enough to be myself. So I'm grateful for that. Fabulous. Well, firstly, I'm, I will stop recording, but because I don't know what happens when I press stop. So let me just press stop, but stay there because I want to take a little picture. Once I've just fixed my hair. Okay. <laughs> right. Let me just see if I can. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> All right. Got to fluff it out. I need to go and get myself together. Blimey, as we say, that was a conversation and then some. Much to the frustration of my assistant, I am one of the few people who podcast without a set list of topics. So I don't work to a particular plan. I don't have a master list of who I want to talk to about what, when, the questions I'm going to ask. I don't even prep questions in advance, to be honest. I just let myself be taken away with their brilliance and I do that because I'm driven by an innate curiosity when I see what people talk about you know what they post about what they record videos how they they share their views of the world I'm fascinated and always attracted to people who talk about issues in depth who don't skim the surface and say what everybody else is saying but who are able to demonstrate vulnerability, knowledge, the ability to learn, unlearn and relearn, and also use that as an opportunity to bring change, to bring people closer to particular issues. And Amanda and Anastasia are no different. It's for the same reason Pretty much all my guests so far have all of that in spades. You know, they they have this in common in that they are uncommon people who aren't afraid to go into conversations that may be dismissed by the mainstream. It genuinely doesn't bother them because they're so committed to their purpose and their purpose is driven from an innate place, not for external validation, but through a personal reckoning, I guess. I remember Joel, if you remember my first podcast episode, Joel Gozer, and he often talks about that the true impetus for change comes from a place of deep crisis. And it just reminds me that We have to be brave enough to confront our deepest fears, but also push past that discomfort that makes safety and doing nothing attractive. In this context with 
Amanda and Anastasia, particularly Amanda and I, talked about the discomfort of setting boundaries, of no longer being the enablers, of no longer wanting to be the sidekicks. That old saying, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. As Anastasia highlighted this narrative that's portrayed in the media and somehow replicated also in real life. That black women, we are destined never to be the heroine or the heroes, where the sidekicks, the ones that mop up the tears, the ones that make our friends laugh and become a tower of strength. And that is fatiguing. And if we are to properly dismantle that, we have to talk about it. And if you're thinking that this is just a dynamic that only plays out in friendships and never in the workplace, I beg to differ. It plays out even in the workplace, particularly when you have women, white women in very senior positions who adopt almost their black female colleagues to help them rise or help them climb the corporate ladder, should I say, but ensuring that we never go higher than them. So there are conditions. And in some instances, we are expected to demonstrate gratitude. And so remember at the very beginning of this episode, when I introduced it, I talked about recognising the roots of this is about the power dynamics. This is exactly it. As always, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Advancing Racial Equity 4.0, brought to you by HRE Wired and hosted by me, Shireen, the HR Conversationalist. <laughs>